0: to the James 3 passage that Mike read for us a little earlier. If you're using a Red Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 1012. James, we've discovered over the last number of weeks, is a book about the tests of what I've called a non-fiction faith. And we've looked at the trials test, the temptation test, the Bible test, partiality test, the neighbor test, the faith works test, and last week the tongue test, and this morning we're going to look at the wisdom test. You might say, well, what do you mean, Pastor Walker? How is wisdom a test of my faith? Well, the answer is because every single day, including today, um, we all make choices about the wisdom that we're going to live by and make our choices. We choose to live by one wisdom or another every day. And I would tell you that James would say that the wisdom that we choose to live by is a proof of the validity of our faith. And, and really, truthfully, if you know the Bible, that's absolutely nothing new. Um, from the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were confronted with two wisdoms. They would either listen to God's wisdom ...and not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... ...or they would listen to Satan who whispered in their ear... ...and told them something completely different. And you can, you know as well as I do, the wisdom they chose... Uh, ...made it obvious uh, where they were in their hearts and their lives. Solomon began by asking God for wisdom. He wanted it more than gold and silver... ...and anything else he could have asked for, he put wisdom at the top of the list. But you know as well as I do, if you read his life story in the Bible... That by the end of his life, he had forsaken that wisdom and gone away for the world's wisdom and had multiplied silver and gold and wives and horses and everything that the wisdom of God had forbidden. That's exactly what he did. Proverbs 9 puts the choice of wisdom side by side and describes it as lady wisdom and lady folly. And they both have houses, and we go by them, and they're both enticing, but in completely different ways. And the wisdom of Proverbs from the father to the son is to be able to have the understanding and discernment of which one to choose. Um, Daniel is compared to the wise men, and so is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 1 and 2. The word wisdom is used throughout, not to mention the numerous times wise men are mentioned in those two chapters but God wants it to be very clear that the wise men of Babylon as wise as they think they are could not reveal the hidden mysteries of Nebuchadnezzar's dream but Daniel and his friends could because they knew the source of true wisdom and that is God Jesus was constantly showing the difference between the wisdom that he had and the religious leaders they were contrary one to another in fact Jesus said in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, that wisdom is justified by its deeds. Paul spent many, many chapters, not the least of which is 1 Corinthians 1, saying that the wisdom of the world is completely the opposite of the wisdom of the cross. In fact, if you're a non-believer and you don't know God, you'll think that what we're talking about today is foolishness. But in truth, the Bible says that what we're talking about is not foolishness, it's actually the wisdom of God itself. And so you go through the Bible from the beginning to right till we get to James, and you'll find that these two wisdoms have been placed side by side, and we have to make choices. You have made choices. You have chosen to use one wisdom or another in all of your decisions that you've made this week. And so let me say it straight out to you. James is not talking to us Today about the, be, the wisdom that we believe, but the wisdom that we behave. He really wants you this morning as you listen to this message... To come to the honest evaluation and realization of what is your functional wisdom. What really do you function? What really guides, directs, and makes your decisions? Whether it's the morals that you live by, whether it's the priorities that you have and what matters most in your life, about how you handle your finances, how you work out your relationships and the difficulties that you face at times. See, here's what James wants to know. Does your faith and your wisdom match? Do they really go together? So let me say it in one sentence. True faith is demonstrated by choosing to live out true wisdom. True faith is demonstrating by choosing to live out true wisdom. Now, we're not covering it today, but in the the weeks ahead, chapter 4 and 5, he's going to say this right after our text. See, the wisdom that you choose will make a difference on how you handle conflicts. Where do wars come from? Chapter 4, verse 1. Where do fightings come? Why do people get in? Why did those kind of divisions happen? He says, because you're using worldly wisdom. That's why those things happen, he says. And he also says later on in chapter 4, hey, you know, you're making future plans. If the Lord will is what you ought to say. But people were going and, and, and they were making plans and business deals and, and conducting their lives and their careers and their jobs and they were eliminating God from the equation. See, see, it's the wisdom that you choose. He says there are people who were suffering and going through difficulty and when you face cancer and you re- face loss and you face unemployment, whose wisdom is guiding you in your responses to all of those difficulties? And again, James would say, it's not the wisdom that comes out your lips, but the wisdom that is demonstrated by your life that really is the proof. So I want you to think about, even maybe perhaps as I'm speaking this morning, about the real life situations that are coming up in your life, relationally, in your business, responding to difficulties and trials. Do they prove the authenticity of your faith? Or are the decisions you're making and the wisdom that you're using to make them, are they demonstrating that God pretty, pretty much is not even in the equation? So we only have two this morning. James gives us two, two features of a true wisdom. And can I tell you, I think after we're done, you're going to say, I really need to get both of these under my belt. If I'm going to make decisions for my wife and my, my family and my life and my children that glorify God. So let me unpack them just one at a time. First is verse 13, if you look in the text. And that is this. True wisdom is about becoming a certain kind of person. James starts off with a rhetorical question. And he's done a lot of those in, this chap, in these chapters. And he says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, this isn't the first time, and you know it, he's mentioned wisdom back in verse 5 of chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And I think what he does by asking it as a question, start here, would you you start here this morning? Start here believing this right off the bat. I need God's wisdom way more than I think. Can you start there this morning? That's going to take some humility. But here's what James says. By asking the question, who is wise and understanding among you? And the question is, I'm not sure. (laughs) Maybe they thought they were wiser than they realized they were. And and here's what he says. You may be, you may not be as wise as you think. And so here's what James is going to do for us. He's going to be able to tell us what a wise person really is like. That way you can know whether you're becoming or not or you're really even functionally practicing God's wisdom in your day-to-day life. James says, true wisdom must be proven by conduct. Do you see it in the text? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. By his conduct. Most of us think that wisdom is is really over the life experiences, um, accumulating wisdom principles. An apple a day will keep the doctor away. Measure twice, cut once. Remember that? I do know a few things about that world. But we think if we just store up wisdom principles that that makes us wise. See, here's what James says. Did you catch it? Look at it. He didn't say what? That True wisdom is by good knowledge. He didn't say that. He didn't say you get wisdom by good experiences. He didn't say that. He didn't say you get wisdom, true wisdom, by good success in life. Because you are really successful and your job does well and you make a lot of money and you're in the top of your field. That doesn't make you wise. See? He says, here's what the test, the acid test of true wisdom is. He says, it's your good conduct. It's your lifestyle. Does the wisdom of God start from the inside and make its way to the outside? And it's interesting in the Greek language there are two major words for good. One is agathos and it means good as contrasted with evil. That's not the one he's saying here. But there's another one he uses here, kalos, and here's what the word means. It's good in contrast to ugly. To ugly. See, 1 Peter 3 talks about women who are married and how they ought to emulate Sarah, the patriarch's wife. And in it, here's what he admonishes them to do in 1 Peter 3, 3. But don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear. So here's what he says. There is an attractiveness and there is a beauty. But don't let it be just what you are on the outside. He goes on to say, using the same word, but in contrast, let your adorning be what? The hidden person of the heart. Not an outer beauty so much, although there's certainly nothing wrong with that. This is not a, a, a statement about be as homely as you can. Right? Here's what it is. But it's about emphasis. It's about what matters most. Let it be the hidden person of the heart, listen to this, with an imperishable beauty. What kind of beauty? One that is marked by a gentle and quiet spirit. See, that's what God values. Now see, that's wisdom of God. In our world, right? If you're a teenage girl, or even a guy anymore, what is wisdom in the world? What is beauty in the world? You know, it's all about externals. It's about the hairstyle you have and about the clothes you wear and, and the logos that are on your clothes and the car that you drive and how you're shaped and how thin you are and your face and, and all of these things and how attractive you are. And see, that's the wisdom of the world, and we often live by that. I mean, we hours and hours in front of the mirror, no? I mean, I they have Sephora opened up in Kohl's. I don't know how that works, but they do. Ulta, is it Ulta? I'm thinking it's like a mall over there. I mean, there's all kinds, why? And we have malls, we have shops, why? Because our world says you gotta look good. Not so much concerned about whether you are good, but you gotta at least look good. You know why? Because the worldly magazines, right? Commercials, Hollywood, movies, what's the, infa- what's the emphasis? Look good. But see, the, anath- the antithesis of that. Is that here's God says, live a life that when people watch you live, that makes Jesus attractive. See, let what's on the inside be what is the emphasis in your life. Did you see what it says? It's not his works that show his wisdom. I'm sorry, his words. It's his works. And those works evidenced God's transforming power on the inside. See how the verse ends? Look at verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, his attractive, beautiful living out of his faith, he says. Show, demonstrate his works. How? In the meekness of wisdom. It's the word used, a gentle and quiet spirit on the inside, See how the woman was beautiful? She had an imperishable be- beauty, but it was inner beauty. And here's what he's saying. Wisdom starts on the inside because you have a relationship with God. Without a relationship with God, there is no wisdom. Proverbs says in 1.9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, he's talking about wisdom that makes you become a certain type of person. A person that is beautiful inside. And that power that transforms the inside of you, he terms it in this way, meekness. Meekness. He's used it once already. In James 1.21, he says, you receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. See, it's receiving it humbly. It's receiving it with lowliness. It's an inner quality. Spurgeon says this, that in all the four Gospels, 89 chapters of text in the Bible, there's only one place, only one place where Jesus gives us what his own heart is about. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30, here's how Jesus describes his own heart, the very inner core of who he is as God. Listen to this. The only time he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. You know what he just says? You know what he says? Listen to Dave, uh, Dane Ortland. His book, we passed it out, Gentle and Lowly. If you want a copy, we still have a couple more. Dane Ortland says We are not told that Jesus describes his own heart as austere and demanding. That's not how he uses the description. He says we are told he doesn't use the term exalted and dignified, although he is. He doesn't describe his heart as joyful and generous, although it was. The one opportunity Jesus says, you want me to tell you what I'm really like? Here's what I am. Gentle and lowly. I have a heart where the power inside is under control. The heart in biblical terms, you know this. It's not just part of who we are. It's the center of who we are. It's what defines us. It's what directs our lives. And here's what wisdom is. Wisdom has a heart that is filled with meekness. Power under control. It's the core of the person that we're becoming. If you read it throughout scripture, you'll know this. That is a relational term, par excellence. It is the very opposite of, of arrogant self-assertiveness. It is a word that denotes an attitude of humility in how you deal with others. It's not weakness, like the world would say. It's power under control. It's when you have relational disagreements with people and you don't feel like you've been treated correctly. It's, It's a person who doesn't have to contend for their rights. It doesn't have to have other people accept their views. You know why? Because they have power under control. The question is, the first question of wisdom is this, are you that kind of person? Not whether you're skilled or intelligent or an expertise in some field that you're really good at, But what kind of person are you? See, is your conduct, your lifestyle, your relational abilities, are they attractive to other people? Are they showing that when people are different than you, if they disagree with you, or they're even disappointed in you, how do you respond to that? Jesus says, my heart is a heart of meekness on display. Would your spouse say that of you? That when you disagree at home... It's really meekness. It's not that you lose your temper. It's not that you start yelling and screaming. It's not the, you know what? It's power under control. What about your teens? What about your children when they disobey, when they don't do all the things, when they fall short of all the expectations? How do you respond? Co-workers and bosses who seem to give them, you know, the raise to everybody but you. How do you respond to other church members? See, are your arguments and your disagreements with people marked by power under control or power out of control do you think about do you talk about people or do you talk to people do you give personal jabs to make sure that if you're wrong you can at least get a couple points there are you more concerned about your rights or doing right do you indict people and think the worst or do you wait to reserve and ask questions You see, you know what meekness is? It is the power and wisdom of God on display inside of you. See, so James says to us, true faith is demonstrated by true wisdom. And the first feature of true wisdom you need to get under your belt is this, that true wisdom will make you into a certain kind of person, not just spouting off some things out of your mouth that are wise but a life that demonstrates it on the inside and out. Second feature, last one, is this. That true wisdom finds its source in God. Look at verse 14. But, see the contrast? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false, against the truth. There are two sources of wisdom. Every single person, every single person in here today, you are functioning on one of these wisdoms and the sources that they come from. And so James says, let me tell you where they come from and what they produce in your life. So there's absolutely no misunderstanding of which one you're following. So he's going to do it this way. In verses 14 through 16, he's going to tell us about wisdom that comes from below and then last two verses wisdom that comes from above and just as if you didn't figure it out already they are completely polar opposite of one another so he starts with this but here's what it means i want you to think this way look right here that the words in verses 14 and 15 this is what describes someone who doesn't have any meekness of wisdom. This is what your life, your relationships will look like when you don't have power under control, when that wisdom isn't governing how you respond to people. This is what it will look like. See, it's really a question between this. Do you have Jesus' heart or do you have a worldly heart when you respond to people and the disagreements that you have with them? It's, it's like Dr. James is coming back again and he's going to give you a spiritual EKG this morning. He's going to, have you ever had that where they put those little patches, all the electric, they, they want to, EKG's electric, the, the electricity in your heart, it measures it, right? So this is going to measure the wisdom of your heart. He's going to hook you up to a spiritual EKG and he wants you to know what kind of wisdom and how much of it you have in your life. And he wants you to see the connection between the wisdom you use and the results that it brings. So he says, let me tell you about wisdom that comes from below, right? He says, here's what it's like, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He says it, both of those terms in verse 14, watching the text, he uses them again in verse 16, because he doesn't want you to miss it. These are the two two, uh, characteristics of someone who is not meek. And one of them is bitter zeal, bitter jealousy. The other one is selfish ambition. It's used seven times in the New Testament, and here's how it's used. Someone who is using unworthy or divisive means to promote your own views or your own interests. You've seen it all throughout COVID. People who are on social media, making comments about various issues, causing division by them, and destroying people's relationships and even fellowship at times, For their own purposes. People who tell half-truths. Have you ever experienced this? Lies to accomplish their own personal agenda. They really don't know all the truth, but what they've been told, they share with others. People who, in their conversations with others, campaign for their own divisive causes. James says it's someone who has bitter zeal. It's an intensity because there's a zeal for their own thing. It's a me thing, not a we thing. He says, if you're doing that kind of stuff, he says, and here's what they were doing to top it off. Don't boast. Boast has been a term all throughout James. Don't boast about it. See, not only are they saying these things, but they're boasting that they got one up on somebody because when you do that you're lying against the truth that's what it says the, remember the word truth he says in verse chapter 1 verse 18 you were begotten or you were brought forth your salvation began with the word of truth and now he's saying listen you got saved by truth now you need to live out that truth in your relationships he says don't think that you've got one over or someone you got a victory over them he says no live by the truth And he wants you to know this. If you are marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, know this as a fact. It is not from God. God is not the source of that wisdom. Verse 15 in the original language actually begins with the word not because it's the emphatic word. Not, it says, look at verse 15. Not is this wisdom coming down from above. This isn't from God. So if this is the relational issues and how you handle them know this it's not from God and were it that that was all it was it's not it's a very serious here's what he says you know where it's from he uses three words one commentator called it the unholy triad and it's a it's a contrast earthly versus heavenly natural versus spiritual demonic versus divine He wants you to know that if this is how you act, you're as far away from using God's wisdom as you possibly could. And so he uses a very strong word, but this is the strongest way you can say, here's where this wisdom comes from. The source of this wisdom is what? It's earthly. It's someone who has God out of the equation, shut out of the equation. And the only thing they can think of is things that the world would think of. They only think in human terms. It's like the parents raising their kids, and they put all this time and energy into raising their kids and what their future in college will be someday, and what their job future will be someday, and what their career future will be someday, and what their financial future will be someday. But all along, they shut God basically out of the equation, and they've not considered what their eternal future will be. That's worldly wisdom to put someone's career and their finances and their job ahead of their relationship with God, and then live that way by the choices you make. He says that's earthly. It's taking a job and not considering how, it, only considering how it affects my career, but not my Christianity. It's getting married and only considering my personal happiness, but not ever thinking about my personal holiness. See, it it leaves God out of the, it's earthbound. But he he goes on. It it, it actually gets worse. Unspiritual, that's what marks it. And the word unspiritual is, is, here's how it's translated in 1 Corinthians 2.14, natural. And it means this, you don't have the spirit of God in it. Let me say it to you plain. It's how lost people, humans think that don't have God in their life or don't have the spirit inside of them. He says when you think about life that way and you use that wisdom, you're acting as if you don't know God. And then let me top it off, he says, James says, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's what? Demonic. King Saul started off pretty good. He was head and shoulders above everybody else, literally. He made some good battle things at the very beginning of his life, won a couple of victories. But he got put in pressure situations and he decided not to wait for Samuel and decided to offer the sacrifice himself. Went directly against what God said. He didn't kill all the Amalekites. He spared the king. He spared all the rest of the animals that were for his own benefit and for the people. And he began to use worldly wisdom. He began to think the way that kings of the world and the countries of the Canaanites around them thought. At the end of his life, The guy who had kept God's word very seriously and eliminated all witchcraft, all sorcery, all that kind of stuff, he had eliminated and put people to death over it. At the end of his life, he tries to say before the final battle of his life, he had to seek God. And it says he sought God, but God wouldn't listen to him. You know why? Because he had spent the last years of his life in worldly wisdom. And so you know what he does? He forsakes the wisdom of God and he asks, one of his soldiers, go find the witch for me. The witch at Endor. And he goes and asks her to conjure up Samuel so he could have someone to talk to. How does the guy go, King Saul, how does he go from this to this that the very last thing of his life does before he actually commits suicide on the battlefield is he asking a witch to bring up Samuel for wisdom? You know how he did it? Every day. Every day. This choice, this battle, this event, this priority. See, it happened slowly, year after year, over time, to the place where the thing that he hated the most became what he did. The wisdom had poisoned him. It's demonic. We shouldn't be surprised by that, because in James, we've seen in chapter 2, verse 19, that there's a demonic faith. Chapter 2, 3, verse 6, there's a demonic tongue. Remember he says, it's set on fire of Gehenna. He says there's a demonic wisdom. And in chapter 4, we're going to see there's a demonic pride that we said, the Bible says we should resist the devil because he's arrogant. So let me tell you this. Listen, you living out your nonfiction faith, the real faith of Jesus Christ, every day is a matter of spiritual warfare. Do you understand that? Satan would love no more than every day to have you use the world's wisdom and how you make choices for your life, your family, your marriage, your kids, your priorities, your morals, your values. See, he's at war with you. There is a war on wisdom, and that war is alive and well. That's how important this issue really is. And so verse 16 in that light begins with this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There is disorder and every vile passion. He's, this is how that kind of wisdom cannot be from God. God cannot be the source of that. Why? Because of the results. You know what it results in? Evil. Vile passions. Disorder. It's used in chapter 3, verse 8. It means something that is uncontrollable. Your life becomes out of whack. You don't know how to handle those difficulties. You know why? Because you're using the wrong wisdom, he says. It's a word that means turbulence. Have you ever been on a plane and everything's going smooth and then they say, please fasten your seatbelt because we're going to go through some turbulence? And it's so turbulent, you wonder, what in the world is this thing going to fall apart? See, that's the word disorder your life is full of, see you start using god's wisdom and everything is smooth sailing you're flying great you know what you have to switch you think you need wisdom of the world to have this come out right and so you know what you do it and there's turbulence and your plane start shaking and your life starts shaking and your family and your marriage starts shaking and you begin to wonder why it's the results it's disastrous destructive results of using the world's wisdom. That was wisdom from below, but let me close with this. The wisdom from above is completely different in verses 17 and 18. So he says one more time, contrast. But the wisdom from above, that little phrase from above is used in chapter 1, verse 17. That our Father, the gifts that come from above, it means where God is. It it denotes heaven. So here's what he says. You want to have the wisdom from below? It's from hell but you ought to choose the wisdom from heaven. See, he says its origins are not in demons, but in God. See, the origins of the first kind of wisdom are natural, but this one is supernatural. It's spiritual. It is God, at the center of it. What would it look like if you had a wisdom? And how would you make decisions? We're a perfect number seven. He gives seven traits, and we're not going to go through all of them. Don't worry. Seven traits of a wisdom that comes from above. Can I tell you what characterizes all of them? The first wisdom from below is characterized by this. It makes war. There can be no peace. It is a demonic, strife-ridden, bitter jealousy, selfish, and conflict is what you get. That's the key mark. Not this one. Not war, but peace. See the difference? It's first pure. It's not defiled. It's the opposite of every vile good. Every vile evil, I should say. It's good. It's beautiful. It's attractive. It's holy. It's righteous. It's in keeping with who God is. And then from the beginning of the list, it says peace. And then at the end of it says, and those who search for peace or seek peace will make peace. You see, peace, peace, peace. It, this is the difference. And we could go through all the traits, and here's what you'd find. That this is a, this is a trait or a kind of wisdom that isn't out to get its own way, it's out to get unity. It's out to pursue it. It's out to be persuaded of what is best. It's not a me wisdom, it is a we wisdom. And it says it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial, it means it acts consistently and isn't by one way and not the other. It's sincere, it's unhypocritical. You put them all together and they are completely opposite. One has war and conflict, the other one has peace. And purity. And he says, here's the principle, verse 18. What you sow, you'll reap. If you sow conflict and divisiveness, if you sow bitter jealousy and selfish ambition for your own purposes in addition and your own reasons, here's what he says: you will reap what you sow. But if you sow peace, if you sow kindness, Forgiveness, he says, you will sow completely different, a different kind of harvest, a different kind of crop, a different kind of marriage, a different kind of relationship, a different kind of church, a different kind of person you will become. That's what's at stake because true wisdom, true faith, I should say, is demonstrated by true wisdom. And so James would say, which one are you practicing? Really, not the one you say you adhere to, but the one that your life adheres to. Is it from above or from below? Let's pray. Father, help us. We said at the beginning, and it still holds true, we are far more, all of us, me included, far more in need of your wisdom than we ever could imagine. We need it. We need it in our relationships. We need it in our homes. We need it at our jobs. We need it in our marriages. We need it in our friendships. We need it in our church. We need it. Forgive us, please, for the worldly wisdom that we too often practice. Have mercy on us, Lord, for the results of that. Father, I pray that you'll help us to be people who are becoming wise from the wisdom that comes from above, may that be true of what characterizes our lives because we know Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. And we'll thank you for that in his righteous name. Jesus, we pray, amen.